0: Hello, and welcome to Cartel Aristocrats Cast number 152. I'm Jeremy, and as always, I'm joined with my two co hosts, Ed Wynn of Tales of Adventure and Jim Casale of CoolStuffInc.com. This cast always, is always sponsored by CoolStuffInc.com with free shipping on orders of $100 or more, a sweet 25% BIOS bonus, and plenty more. We recommend checking them out for sure. It is definitely the shop for all of your Magic the Gathering needs. Well, we just came off of a Mythic Championship or Pro Tour. Ed, do you want to go over the potential financial impact of Modern being completely broken wide open with Hogak being a large percentage of the metagame?
1: Um, I don't think it really struck anyone as a surprise. I think going in, basically people know that Hogak was still busted. Uh, playing an eight-eight on turn two with a bunch of other creatures is pretty good. Um, uh, I saw lots of if, like if you watch coverage, you could see that there are a lot of very non-interactive games, a lot of non-interesting games. I think a big part of that is due to Wizards of Coast really dropping the ball and um, and uh, and kind of changing how the the format um of the mythic championship uh plays out and uh in case anyone doesn't know um for all pro tour competitors uh it's open deckless so you are able to know what your opponent's playing and um and then obviously the uh london, this is the first real competitive event with london bull um i think the biggest implication here is that um I think the two together makes for a fairly bad experience um you can't let people part of the appeal of playing in the pro tour mythic championship is to see what other people bring to the table and um as someone who brews as someone who tries to break the format as a deck builder one of your biggest edges is maybe trying to sneak in something that people might not be aware of and now that deck lists are given to players before the beginning of the match you're taking a lot of that away and then that allows for a lot of really strange gameplay um if you read the article that was provided by coverage over the weekend uh, the most played card at the mythic championship was actually Leyline of the void and if you look at quite a few deck lists um a lot of them just opted to play ley line of the void main deck as a way to one hedge against hogat game one and with the inclusion of the london mulligan there's no real drawback as it were to have it in your deck um, and um, as it turns out most decks just have s- there's so many different graveyard strategies between hogak dredge variants phoenix um, that playing layla of, of the void main deck is probably going to help you more often than it's not um, so that being said uh i imagine that wizards will likely take action against the deck in one form or another um, but other than that, there really weren't um, anything, there weren't really any decks or cards that kind of broke out that people weren't already aware of. Uh, most of the winners, if you read uh, Saffron Olive's article on MTG Goldfish today, he kind of broke down the Mythic Championship. And if you look at a lot of the contenders that were already in place, like, uh, like the deck that won on the Pro Tour of uh, Monogreen Tron, it did not play anything new there were no cards from m20 no cards from modern horizons even it was just a very stock yes like yesteryear deck of tron basically um and some of the other winners john There were obviously the inclusions um ren six is obviously a good magic card i gained a little bit by having cycling lands um nurturing peatland um the Phoenix X-Play, one copy of Fiery Islet, and Ario Flame. and None of these things are new. Most people have known about these already. So I think um, in terms of actual financial implications, there wasn't really that much um, from the Pro Tour that can really be gained compared to um, some of the Pro Tours from before.
0: Jim, what were your thoughts? How much of the Mythic Championship did you watch? What did you think about it?
2: Uh, honestly, I didn't watch a whole lot. Um, I was busy this weekend, and Modern is not a format that I play very much of. And by very much of, I mean like pretty much ever. Um, it's been kind of this like, you know, rock paper scissors of like you know either you have your good cards or your better cards against your opponent, or you have your your sideboard cards or whatever, and like. It just kind of, it, it always felt to me like it played out kind of the same way and it wasn't particularly uh, fun, which is like not surprising considering the format that I play the most is Commander, which is probably like one of the higher variance formats where like most of your, uh, most of the time you play things, that are just not, the games are just not at all the same. Um, so it's not surprising to me what happened, but I don't know that this like changes my outlook on things very much. Uh, Hogak is not a card I was looking to purchase anyway because it's not, like, spectacular in Commander. It's just an 8-8. And, like, yeah, it's a really cheap 8-8, but it's just an 8-8. And that's not something that I'm, like, really in the um, market for. Most of the stuff from the set I've already purchased, um, like, I want to get a Prismatic Vista, but that gets played actually a lot in Modern, so... I don't know it really wasn't exciting for me i wasn't really looking forward to it very much um i'm waiting to see what's going to happen Is it, i think it's this weekend it starts the spoilers for commander 2019 and that, that's something i'm way more interested in than um you know what whatever they're going to uh whatever happened at that pro tour
0: i actually was able to watch only day one I had a very successful, you know, pats myself on the back like I normally do in this podcast, um, Legacy 10K on the second day of the Mythic Championship. Um, But from what I saw on day one, I definitely agree with Ed. It seems that coverage made, like, had to go really far down to find interactive matches. There was one round on day one where they had streamed um, Jun versus Blue White Control, and that was actually pretty fun to watch, especially with the types of evolutions Jund has gone through. But a lot of the games that they did showcase did seem extremely non-interactive. Um, financially from this, um, combined, of course, with the TCG 10% kickback, which I I don't know if we really want to talk about that much, um, Card prices for the Tron deck in particular have gone up a bit. That may be because um, there was no Grand Prix this week. So players are just clearing out all the copies that vendors have purchased over the last month where there were a bunch of Grand Prixs. But it was not, it didn't really move that many prices from what I saw. Um, coverage seemed fine. It seems like everyone did a really good job. Um, the camera pans were pretty funny. It felt like Twitch chat commented every time that uh, Wizards executed a basic uh rotation on camera but financially i don't think there's too much to be gleaned from this um pro tour unless you guys feel differently
1: i, I think uh, just to kind of touch on it since you mentioned it uh one of the biggest things um is actually the fact that there is a 10 percent kickback i think tcg is pretty aware that pro tour weekends tend to be a big uh mover for cards it moves the needle quite a bit in terms of prices uh because it basically now that there's a lot of visibility coming to modern not necessarily a good way uh this time around but the fact that there's so many eyes trained on what's happening in modern over the course of the weekend um that people people will definitely buy cards uh you know someone was on the fence about tron they might start picking up pieces if they were already playing Tron and they were missing a few pieces, these are basically reasons for people to just go out and buy the cards they want for Modern now. Um, I don't imagine many people are going to go out and just be rushing to buy Hogak, but if you had Dredge and A-capacity, you probably aren't that far off. um, And you probably have a bit of time to play with Hogak before some action is taken by Wizards. Um, So I think the fact that they they just basically put the 10% in place Um, because it went live, I think the announcement said it went live yesterday, right? That would, that would be Sunday in the States, if that's right. Um, yeah, Sunday in the States through, like, I think it's going on for another few hours. Um,
0: I think it ended at 3 p.m. today.
1: Oh, okay. Uh, maybe it ended already. Um, yeah.
0: Sales have slowed down a bit. And from the initial email, I gathered it was at 3 p.m. today.
1: Okay. Yeah. So regardless, like that's a really, really good window for people basically to kind of get caught up in the hype of, you know, the the new old decks as as it were, and basically cements it as a reason for people to go and buy these cards. Um, so like some of the cards I've noticed, I've actually like looked at the supply of the cards, and some of the better cards like season power mancer, red and six, uh, some of the lands. These cards, the supply actually has gone down. A small amount, like not a substantial amount, but a noticeable amount in the sense that, again, people, if they were waiting for any reason to buy them, they would go buy them now because with a 10% kickback, assuming you'll ever buy Magic Cars again in the future, it's actually a reasonable savings. And I mentioned, I want to say a few weeks ago, um, with the M20 kickback, I don't think you were on that show, Jeremy. I'd actually mentioned that my strategy as a seller is whenever there's a kickback, um, because you have so many sellers that are motivated to try and sell their cards, uh, you usually have, usually see that cards will tend to race to a bottom a bit more. And then you, have, because so many people are wanting to go buy cards, um, it kind of keeps the price up. I will actually intentionally delist a lot of cards that I don't want to sell um, at the prices listed because I know that once all the cheap copies disappear, I'll just be able to get like ten percent more of my cards if I'm willing to list them up later. Your um,
0: metagaming sales Ed correct
1: I that is very much the nature of business you're trying to maximize the amount of money your business makes. Um,
0: oh I, I need to change some things then
1: um, but uh, like that's one of the, that's one of the things that I had mentioned previously. Um, so and if, again, if you look at modern horizon staples, uh, they're actually a little bit higher than they were yesterday again because with the 10% kickback a lot of the cheap copies have disappeared. And it shows that the supply is slowly drying up on these cards. Not by substantial amount, because it it is summer, it is a little slow, but this is kind of a good way to kind of push these sales over the edge for what otherwise might not be there for people to capitalize on.
0: And to clarify for the listeners, I am aware that there was a Grand Prix in Barcelona this weekend, the day after the Pro Tour, but as far as... Grand Prix vendors in the U.S. being able to buy cards and sell cards. It didn't add any noticeable effect to the singles. Whereas if you looked um, at the beginning of this week, there was a lot of vendors that had hundreds of copies of Staples because they finally had a week off to just sit in the, the warehouse or whatever and list cards for sale. So that's what I mean when I say there was no Grand Prix. I mean, there was no Grand Prix where it affected the American market that much. So, just thought I'd clear that up. Um, plague Engineer is seeing play basically everywhere. Um, I know Ed talked about going in on a couple of the Modern Horizons cards at their low. I feel like Plague Engineer was 2 to $3 for a while, and it's now $8. Um, this is seeing play in Modern and Legacy, so there's definitely strong demand. Um, because it's, most of the time at least, it's just Engineered Plague with Upside. So I feel like this is one we should have seen coming, but you know, none of us are perfect. So, um, and then force of vigor is something that I think it's like $6 now. I feel like this hits $10 in a year. It seems like a really strong effect in basically every format. I don't know if Jim is using this in EDH, but it seems like it could have even some application there to stop an instant speed combo.
2: Uh, I mean, it's definitely very good. I don't think a lot of people have necessarily invested in them yet, and I don't know if that's correct or not. Like, I feel like this is the kind of card that could get reprinted a bunch, and like, it's 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 a pretty generic like blow up some artifacts and enchantments thing. Like, they could put it in commander decks or whatever. So, I'm not like rushing out to get them, but. Um, I have like wanted to play it i just haven't purchased the copy mostly out of just laziness and then anything else um it doesn't it it, it's it's a good value card which means that it's not like something that people rush out to buy lots of copies of um so like compared to like what uh paradox engine is where like it's a it's an engine piece that gets your whole deck going This is just a good card to be in your deck. So a lot of people, I think, will be slow to adopt it, but I think it will be very good in Commander eventually.
0: And um, as far as other topics go, I feel like we've talked about this a bunch, but um, I flew Doug in to work my Legacy 10k this weekend, and obviously a line of people trying to sell cards showed up because we pay okay numbers. Um, But there's a line like six to seven people deep doug was sitting at a buy booth buying cards i was buying cards over the case like trying to price them like on the back of the case and then handing over money so we were slammed and someone walked up and they had everything ogred Um, they had about it was fifty six hundred dollars on a buy list ogred and they're like this is what people are paying for near mint cards most of it was card. it was like 75% of TCG, most of it was Card Kingdom or Channel Fireball on average, and every single card in their one row was double sleeved. So my question is to Ed and to Jim as like a former buyer, if you're slammed and someone's ogred everything and it's all double sleeved, do you just snap it at like five to six grand or do you pass and say like, get back in line when everything's unsleeved?
2: I mean, I don't. It's like not worth my time to unsleeve everything. You should know. Don't don't have your cards sleeved. I don't understand why they would ogre the box, but then not take it out of the sleeves. that's like the easiest part of it. Like you looked up all the prices, you did all the work, you sorted everything. But why is it still in sleeves? Like presumably, if it's an ogre box, it's a bunch of stuff that's not worth a ton of money. So like. You're not worried about the condition of them. It's not like you're really like, trying to sell like
0: staples. It was like a show and tell deck. Ogred, infect, ogred, like a bunch of legacy staples. Ogred, but they were all double sleeved, and the ogre box was at, um, uh, like TCG,
2: card kingdom, etc. I don't know, man. I I like you can't sell. You don't sell sleeved cards to people. You have to take them out, and if you have The more cards you have, the more reason you should take them out ahead of time. That's what I'm saying. Like, if you're selling a piece of power, you can carry it around in a sleeve, take it out, show it, and then put it back in. Not a big deal. But if you have like a whole deck worth of cards, you should just have already unsleeved them. And if someone came over and was like, hey, you know, I want to sell this, it's already sorted and all that, I'd look at it and be like, well, take it out of the sleeves and then, you know, bring it back to me.
0: Ironically, we bought five or six pieces of power this weekend, and they all were just handed to us unsleeved. They were just like, here's in a fat pack, like here's a piece of power. What will you pay? Um, I but mean, that's Ed, fine
2: too. It's like whatever you want to do, man. Yeah. Whatever your prerogative
0: is. Ed, would you mind explaining to the listeners what an ogre box is, and then what your personal thoughts on this situation are?
1: Um, I think this is generally a strategy that's really only good to utilize at GPS, uh, mainly kind of due to abundance of vendor abundance. Excuse me, of vendors. I don't really see the need to do that like at your event, for example. I believe I imagine you guys only have two vendors, right? It's probably just you and Moonbase as the vendors. There's yeah, probably no one else. That's okay. why we
0: were slammed. Right. right. Like a hundred and something players per vendor.
1: Right. Um so like the premise of it is that rather than me take the cards to a vendor and say, hey, price my stuff out. Right, And then, you know, your vendor will just go through and then just start laying cards out on the mat. Um, I'm actually doing the work for them. Um, The idea is that you have your cards sorted by price rather than sorted however people sort their cards um, when they sell them. Um, So you basically kind of, like for me, when I do it, I basically have a buy mat. um, And I basically just pull out cards and say, you know, I want, you know, quarters on these, 50 cents on these, dollars, $2, $3. Blah blah blah, and then um, you know when you go up to someone, you basically just hand them a stack and say, "All right, all these cards, I want quarters on. Pull out what you want, etc." And then you know they'll pull out what they want. Presumably, if you had done it right, um, in my mind, um, if the vendor just takes everything in your overbox, you probably price things too low. If they don't take enough things, you probably price things too high. Um, the idea is that not every vendor is able to uh to buy everything at good prices right some vendors if they ha- if they're heavy on commander at their store or they do well with it online for example they might pay better on commander staples but if they uh if they don't necessarily have the competitive player base they might not be paying as well on standard modern cards or if you have an older player base that can and you support legacy at your store you'll probably pay better on legacy staples you'll probably don't do as well with standard, for example. Um, so, by uh, for me, I price it uh, reasonably aggressively. Um, if card, de- It really depends on the card. I generally do some mix of what I get with a card after fees and shipping plus time. So, on like a $6 card, I'll probably put it at like either 3 or $4, depending on how good it is. I'll cross-reference with Card Kingdom. Um, I don't particularly... Care to deal with Card Kingdom because I think they're idiots and they're um, the people that, that who who grade the buys are just abysmal. Um, and um, so, for example, if they if if someone's paying three fifty on a card and I have it, um, and I'd probably be happy taking three dollars uh, in on the over um, in the ogre box to not have to ship cards out to Card Kingdom, for example. Um, and usually for me, if I take an ogre box and I walk around, my expectation would be that if I take it to about four or five vendors, I probably should clear probably 80 to 90% of the box. I imagine that I'll always have some stragglers in there. I usually put signed cards or uh, heavy play cards or damage cards at a substantial discount um, because I'd rather someone else make the money rather than me have to deal with it. Uh other than that, I don't know if there's much else about Ogre boxes that I want to touch on. I think I think I covered the majority of it.
0: So what I ended up doing is going through the entire box, and I pulled out maybe twenty to twenty-five like playsets of stuff I wanted. I checked the condition of those, and then I bought them. And I was like, um, "Come back and de-sleep the rest, and we can talk." And then he just said, no, I was like, all right, well, then I'm not going to give you a six grand. Um, and ironically, the next buy was a double sleeved mono green deck that I uh, de-sleeved because the buyer was just like, oh, you know, pay me whatever. I'm like, well, we have to de-sleeve it first. And this guy's been a mainstay in the community for five to six years. And I grabbed the first Karn out of the sleeve and I turned to Doug and I was like, this is definitely fake. And handed it to Doug and Doug's like, yeah, this is fake. Um, So what ended up happening is uh, all four of his cards were fake because he had purchased them on eBay like three years ago or whatever. And then the rest of all the cards he had bought from me, like over the years and all those cards were real, obviously. Um, But it just shows to maybe uh, be cautious when people are handing you double sleeved cards. Um, obviously, it was a mistake by him, but I could have been burned on like a couple hundred bucks buying fakes. Um, they were like the fakes that you couldn't really see in a double sleeve. But as soon as you felt the back of the card as Ed knows, it's super glossy. The print is off, etc. And it was pretty easy to determine from there that I definitely did not want to buy those. So it's just a tale of caution, I guess. Not a Tales of Adventure.
1: I think the general policy is that um, if you want if you want someone to buy your cards quickly, have them basically de sleeved and ready to go. Or if you have an Ogre box, for example, and you're trying to sell, you know, you pick bulk and you have a stack of ponders or something, shove a bunch of them in one sleeve. That way, it's that way they can stay together. Um, they won't shift around, and then it's still easy for them to uh, to pull out the cards they want quickly. Um, as a rule of thumb, if someone's trying to sell you a deck or something, I would generally ask them to de-sleeve the deck, mainly because, you know, Jeremy's instance is basically the perfect example that, um, it's, if you're buying a whole deck, it's kind of easy to just mindlessly go through and price everything out. Um, but it's possible, uh, not always the case, but if someone is going to be malicious about it, um... It's very very easy to, for them to just potentially pick up to, or just sneak a few fakes in there um, without anyone noticing, right? Like it's probably if you had if you hadn't de-sleaved everything um, and looked at things closer, it's possible that they could have gone away with a play with a place of cards or even just one card. They probably could have slipped in one fake card and three real ones. Again, not saying that people are, would do this maliciously, but um, or that people don't know better. But this is one of those instances where if you're diligent and you do D sleeve, it generally pays off. If you catch like one fake out of your entire deck, because the one fake that you do catch is probably gonna be an expensive card, right? No one's no one's faking, no one's faking like a ten dollar card, right? If people want fake, people are gonna fake like a Liliana Veil or Trampler Boy for something.
0: The biggest experience I've had with that before. Jim gives his opinion on that is occasionally i've bought like blue red modern garbage decks where the scalding turns are real but like one snapcaster is fake so like if you want to be malicious you would like hand a vendor a deck sorted out and those turns would be on top so the vendor would check that those were real and then like just assume the rest of the deck is real so like that's the next level scumbaggery that occasionally could happen
2: no, I was going to say that, like, definitely checking for fakes is something that you have to do by de-sleeving the cards. And even just out of, like, you know, you, you don't want people to be, like, lazy and give you you know a bunch of extra work, but, like, that's definitely something that people have to consider is, like, it's so much harder to check for fakes when they're in sleeves because a lot of times the texture of the card gives it away.
0: Yep. That's a good point. Um, but, you know... Occasionally, we should talk about buying and selling collections. So I felt that ogre boxing is an important thing to do, especially if a lot of our listeners, it looks like in the live stream, are planning on going to Vegas. It's definitely with that many vendors in the room, though it does feel like they've trimmed it back over the last couple of years. um, Ogre boxing will definitely be a beneficial strategy there when every booth is packed and you have like 30 vendors
1: to choose from. So, yeah. Yeah. And to be perfectly honest, um, if there's going to be a line, I will probably, I'm more likely to buy more from someone who has something Ogre boxed out and they're reasonable with their prices. Um, one the thing I forgot to mention is that when I price my cards, I usually have the expectation that I should give a little, um, a little wiggle room. Um, most of the time, if I have something priced at like five, I'm probably okay taking four especially if if they've gone through and bought a lot. I usually usually tell other vendors, a lot of them know me, and I say, I'm usually pretty transparent, say like, hey, if we're close, let me know. Uh, Most of the time, most of the time, the prices are made with uh, the assumption that I will probably have to give a little bit up somewhere. And if a vendor is just buying a lot, I will usually just say okay to a lot of their things. I probably won't take like three out of five, but four out of five is most often gonna be okay. Uh, I might take three if I have like a bunch of a card, or if it's a slow mover, etc. But uh, back to what I was trying to say, um, I'm more likely to pay over my buy lists, like come up a little bit. Uh, If, um, again, if things are reasonably priced, there's and there's a lot of it, mainly because going through it quickly is just way faster than trying to look up the cards that um, I don't know the price on. I know there are some vendors out there that uh, are a little loose with how they buy cards and they uh, shoot from the hip, as it were. Um, Especially, and uh, that's usually the case when people are trying to buy quickly. Uh, Their time is kind of at premium. And I know some vendors would just rather make up a price or pay a low number rather than go through and look cards up. Um, Personally, in... uh, I value accuracy. I try to be as accurate to what we should pay as possible so that everyone I provide everyone with the same experience. Um, And if you provide me the courtesy of just already pricing your cards out in advance, I'm more likely to come up on my buy price because you did the work rather than making me sit here and look up your cards. Um, So that's my experience when buying with uh, people who bring over boxes to me.
0: That's because you're a professional, Ed. And speaking of professionals, let's talk about the new judge program and the promos that were announced. Um, We now have a sort of judges union, I guess you could say, where um, they're going to be paying a membership fee. And in return, they get um, most likely a Seb uh, Chalice of the Void, along with three other promos that have also been announced and it's going to be interesting to see what happens to the prices of these promos as far as how many of them are going to be out there and if we see a decline in judges um, where they previously had just sort of volunteered their time to judge. What do you
1: think, Ed? Uh, I I think we should probably uh, expand on this a bit. I think not everyone might be necessarily privy to what's going on. I haven't actually read all the announcements myself, but kind of the the TLDR of it is that yesterday, I guess yesterday, right, Sunday, Sunday slash Saturday in Barcelona, um, it um, basically people started tweeting slash chatting about it, about how there was going to be changes to the judge program, and there's basically going to be formation of something they call the Judge Academy, which is an independent party um, it's actually owned and operated by Tim Shields, who is the owner of Cascade Games LLC. Um, Rest
0: in peace to the great one. We must hear GPS.
1: Um, he was the TO out of the Pacific Northwest. I've known him for a very long time, mainly because he was the TO that ran uh, PTQs in uh, Portland, Seattle, and Boise. Uh, they had GPS for a long while, but with kind of the consolidation of the bigger tos, uh, he he he's kind of fallen by the wayside. He does events for a lot of comic cons. Uh, so he does like the magic events for San Diego San Diego Comic Con, among other things. Um, but without going too much into the background of him, um, Judge Akami is basically this. I guess, like Jeremy said, Union is kind of the best way to put it. I'm not really a fan of that word. Uh, but it basically is asking judges to pay a fee based on their level. I believe it's one, two, and four hundred for L1, L2, L3s. And it provides, excuse me, the point of the the point of the judge academy is to provide them with the tools. I imagine that there'll be a lot of. Uh, I, I imagine training is a part of that, and it also helps uh, centralize. In, in uh, from kind of why I interpret it is a way to centralize how events would be staffed, um, from various levels, from you know your store MCQs all the way up to grand prix and pro tours, um, and um, it, it's basically just a way to kind of bring the entire community together in one central place and have it uh, remove from Watsie's scope of operations more or less. I think I think that was, in my mind, that is really their intent. Uh, a lot of people seem to be up in arms, thinking that now people have to pay to be a judge, and I don't think that's really true. I think by having, I don't really want to say a subscription fee, but I guess you can look at it as union fees or union dues or whatever. That's probably the closest analog. They're basically being provided with these benefits that are there. That they may not otherwise have because the program, because the judge program itself doesn't have any sort of in, internal funding or ways to generate revenue. And by doing this, it's actually allowing them to have some amount of funding that's available that can help judges kind of expand and have opportunities that they might not otherwise have under the previous system.
2: Jim, what are your thoughts? Um, I don't I don't know. Uh, honestly, I don't have enough information. I didn't read the article so it's it's difficult for me to comment. I am a little worried that uh, it could be it, it could cause the the price of events to go up because you have to compensate judges more, but I think that that's a good thing overall. I think that judges are horribly undervalued given their contribution to the community. So, uh, as far as like, I, I don't go to events often that have judges, we'll say. Like, I don't really play it at LGS anymore. I kind of just play it at friends' houses. So, it's this doesn't affect me personally, but I do have a lot of friends that are judges. And I, I hope that this is a net positive for them.
0: i pay my judges in cash rather than standard boxes because i agree with judge but i agree with jim that judges are undervalued um as a to like we pay 200 dollars cash or 150 cash depending depending on the event with two hot meals and unlimited drinks etc i feel like um If you're a judge and you're getting paid in like two standard booster boxes a day, you're making way less than a minimum wage. And there's been a couple judge podcasts that have discussed um, the MTG finance of being a judge and having to share rooms and how to sell boxes and stuff like that. We probably, as Jim said, should have a judge on to talk about this. That's into MTG finance. There's already several of them out there that we can reach out to. Um, But, you know, we make some money or in some cases, a lot of money, you know, buying and selling cardboard. So the least we can do as a TO or someone like that is pay judges cash.
1: Ed, I uh, do. You, uh, just, just to, um, I have a question for you, real quick. Do you pay your judges? Uh, do you, do you cover their um, their expenses? Right? Do yeah. You like- their
0: accommodations, all their meals, any types of drinks, any of that stuff.
1: So their travel and... Not their up?
0: travel because the judges normally live less than two hours away. Okay. So, but they're put up, they're given meals, stuff like that.
1: Okay. So, um.
0: yeah.
1: Uh, just kind of spitballing out there. Um, I have a fair amount of friends who are judges. A lot of them used to judge uh, fairly extensively in the Grand Prix circuit. And I know, I know a fair amount of them have kind of fallen off and more or less stop judging. Um, they said that it wasn't really worth their time. Um, uh, I think kind of the standardization of uh, the process.
0: Do we lose that again? Possibly. <laughs> you know, it wouldn't be a yeah. cartel cast without Ed losing some sort of connection. You wanna try again, Ed?
1: Am I am I here, or did I just kind of yeah, start? We You're can hear
0: you loud and clear.
1: Okay, um, uh, the, with the way that we standardized compensation with the x x number of booster boxes uh per per day per lo- or per level per day type thing, I think uh, a lot of people I know are, are quite happy with that. One because judges have a lot of things. A lot of issues that such as, you know, that, you know, I don't really want these boxes. I just want to get paid on them. You have a lot of people who are aggressively trying to sell their boxes. And then in the case of M20, it's fairly miserable to try and sell the box because no one really wants to buy M20. M20 is just way worse than the previous sets. It's much better for judges to get war. Um, for the judges that have bronze products, we've basically asked like, hey, if you can go switch this out to war, you know, we can pay you a little bit better than, m20 no one really wants m20 um judges don't want to sell for that little um because that's basically just shooting themselves in foot in terms of how much compensation they have but conversely they can't take back all their product because they don't want to pay for an extra check bag which is them losing money on it anyways there, there's just a bunch of issues with it um i'm somewhat sympathetic towards judges but on the flip side um I don't know if there. I don't know if there's a clear cut fix. Uh, I've asked a few judges how they would feel about being an actual wizard's employee, for example, and a lot of them seem against it. Um, so I'm, I'm not really sure, like, what they're trying to get here. Um, I think the judge program has had issues from the very start. I don't think there. Again, there's a good fix to it. Um, uh, like Jim said, I just, you just, I just have to kind of hope that going forward, this is going to be something that is a net positive for the program rather than, um, than just kind of a, a Band-Aid fix on something that is a fairly systemic
2: problem.
0: Anything you want to add to that, Jim?
2: Nope. I think that's pretty much summarizes how I feel.
0: Okay. Yeah, it's just interesting to note... Um, Since there's only one big TO out there for GPs right now, um, they don't really have a choice in the compensation that they're offered. So it can be hard sometimes. And yeah, we should have a judge on to discuss this at some point. Um, Anything else you guys want to talk about this week?
2: I mean, I already told you I'm excited for Commander 2019. So my, my money is like waiting for that.
1: I believe we had uh, the theme of this year kind of spoiled. I don't think that was something that... Was that known to us last week? I can't remember if we talked about that. Yes. I, okay.
0: Yeah. We should talk about the increase in throne prices for European um, shops. That seems like a topic we should talk on. Ed?
1: Uh, yeah, so if anyone looked at like the uh, MTG Finance subreddit um, and on Twitter as well. A lot of people have started to mention that the cost on product has gone up. Uh, it's no secret that the U.S. gets... Uh, US, uh, the boxes are cheaper here than anywhere else um, in the world. I know a lot of countries pay uh, quite a bit for their boxes from their distributors. Um, and I believe Europe, it just went up by about 10%. I think from what I vaguely remember, uh, having had this discussion with uh, some other people in the past, uh, cost of boxes was in the 76 to 77 euro range. And if we kind of scale that back, that's anywhere from like 84 to like $88. And now a lot of vendors are looking at roughly a 10% increase on top of that. So it's, I think in the realm of 85 to 86 euros which is uh, at, at today's exchange rate, probably about like 93 and change or so. And that's not even the most that uh, uh, boxes cost out there. I believe in Australia, boxes cost about $99, $98 to $99. Um,
0: the only thing about Australia that's important to note is that they have a higher wage. Yes. Um, in Australian dollars anyway.
1: Yes, I believe minimum wage is seventy three Australian dollars, which are seventy three AUD per hour uh, at at today's rate. I believe twenty three is about sixteen point like four point five or something like that. Well, first off, you said
0: seventy three, but um, I, I thought it translated to about thirteen US dollars minimum.
1: No, 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 it's much higher than that. Twenty, twenty, twenty-three. I think twenty-three is like about sixteen or so. All right. Well, Um, it's
0: not seventy-three dollars for our listeners.
1: Okay. Uh, Did I say seventy-three? All right. I'm
0: pretty sure. Run it back, listeners. I think
1: that's. I think that's just me mumbling. Um. (laughs) Uh, cost of living is much higher there. Generally, your expenditures are much higher in Australia. Um. So, I believe most stores probably charge like one twenty plus or so. AUD per box, Um, but uh, I know that some European stores, uh, their entire business model is centered around them opening product and selling off the singles, especially uh, close to release date. I know that in uh, London a few months ago, uh, there were quite a few European vendors that were shopping around basically the entirety of the set. Uh, I was shopping around the entire entirety of the set at, uh, at the release uh, weekend because they were available. Um, they were trying to sell them, trying to sell off all the expensive foils. Uh, they had like full sets, plenty of all the mythics, etc. And I feel like this might put a bit of a damper on their plans. Um, it really depends on the vendor. The vendors that are most successful doing this are places in Europe that have uh, relatively low labor costs. So I know like Parts of Eastern Europe, like Poland, the Czech Republic, these are places where a lot of these stores can afford to crack a boatload of product um, because it doesn't, it, because labor wise, they don't really spend that much. So it's uh, basically however much uh, they can pay for the boxes, all pure profit for them. Um, but that might change in the future. I think that was really all there was about the European box prices. That I yeah, thought it was
0: just a good topic to touch on so we should probably get into um, pick of the week um, we will be on cool stuff next week I actually forgot to submit uh, to cool stuff this week because of the 10k so credit questions will be returning as of tomorrow July 30th wow.
2: Jim well well, not the, the credit questions won't return the place to, to put your credit questions will return we won't pick until the following week correct
0: but we will be picking cards for the week if ed wouldn't mind starting us off
1: uh yep to kind of round out uh my picks for the past few weeks uh two weeks ago i picked cards from Ravnica allegiance that were good last week i picked cards from guilds round that were good uh today i'll probably pick a few war the spark cards it's kind of in the same vein as others i think a lot of the mythics are just criminally underpriced right now um If you were looking to play standard, I would just round out whatever you interpret as a playset of standard cards that you would want. Um, We've seen cards like, uh, you know, God Eternal Kefnet was, I think, pushing like $15 at one point, kind of after the set release. It It had pre-ordered much higher, but it fell kind of quickly. And then the fact that it didn't really show up in standard um, has basically brought it down to about $6 to $7 right now. Um, I don't think that card's a 4 of, but I don't think it hurts to own 2. Um, kind of the same thing with uh, God Eternal, Ketra. Uh, we have seen some fringe decks that do play this. Um, at $4, I don't think it hurts to own the few that you need. Um, even Liliana, Dreadhorde General, it has come down quite a bit. Um, these are all things that I think if you have any intention of playing Standard, uh it doesn't hurt to get the mythics out of the way uh or the spark was a reasonably popular set i think um given how good the value of the boxes were for quite some time uh that's probably what's causing these singles to be much more depressed in price than they uh compared to sets uh around the same time frame in the past um I think, again, a lot of the Mythics... I don't really have a specific Mythic, but these are the types of cards that if you want to play Standard, it doesn't help to just get your playset or your two or three of these Mythics out of the way now so that you're not just paying a premium tax in September when Standard has a whole slew of decks um, that would likely include some number of these. And I think the most appealing part about these is that because uh, a lot of them are Legendary, a lot of them are casual especially with, like, the advent of, like, all the Planeswalkers, you um, are unlikely to lose money by buying them now. Worst case scenario, you can just buy list them off in September through December or whatever um, at roughly break-even prices, or if you sell them yourself, you'll just pay the fees or whatever. Um, and I feel like that's reasonably good insurance, again, against potentially being price out standard because you didn't pull the trigger now and you wait until September when decks start picking them up
2: and they spiked as a result. I agree. Uh, my pick this week is uh, also another standard mythic. I think that Vivian Arcbow Ranger is a card right now that doesn't have a home, uh, much like Vivian Reed did before the last rotation. It was only a few dollars. And then green mid-range decks, just general good stuff is just something that always comes around. It always becomes good again. Um, the minus is pretty, it, it, it's it's not quite as good as Vivian Reed in terms of like power, but it costs one less mana. Uh, it has three green in its casting cost, and like, I'm not saying that like Devotion or Chroma or any of that stuff is going to be a thing, but there are a significant number of cards in, in this core set that have a lot of colored mana symbols on them, so I don't think it's unreasonable to assume that there will be something that cares about them in particular um and at like sub three dollars like it's really hard to get a planeswalker in standard that's that low um i think that it's probably worse than the ajani and and then the other the other three planeswalkers are chandra mu Yenling, and sorn which are seeing a a little bit of play which makes them i think more expensive you don't think that you're gonna want to play them where vivian is just like if this ever gets good, you're definitely going to be set at sub two, you know, sub three dollars. But uh, it could easily be like a ten or fifteen dollar card after rotation if there's something in the next set that really cares about what it has going on.
0: Yeah, I like that pick as well. Um, I have like an interesting pick that I think Ed will argue with me on, and then I have another pick for rotation. So my first pick is Renin Six for only one reason. Um, if you're going you to own G- six of them,
2: what is it because you own Renin Six of them?
0: I, I actually own zero. I own zero before the Legacy 10K, and we bought zero at the Legacy 10K, and it made up a substantial amount of the meta. Uh, we were paying like 65 to 70 on Renin Six, um, which is not GP vendor prices, but it's pretty good for LGS prices. Um, but if you're going to GP Vegas, I think that uh Renin 6 will be at least $85 on buylist by the time Vegas rolls around. Um, and it looks like on TCG player, as a couple of our listeners had talked about, the only vendors that have multiple copies in stock are already listing them over a hundred dollars each. I think that we're going to see Ren 6's buy-list and two to three weeks be effectively what retail is today is today um, so i think that's going to be the final price point for runnin six at which point a lot of them come back into supply and prices start going down the rest of the year um, so if you're going to vegas i recommend if you can find them trading for them and then selling them at gp vegas my second pick is to ferry the five mana one it's already fallen to $20. I anticipate this falling probably down to 15 or something at rotation, at which point I really like picking this up once again because of its impact and modern. It's not necessarily a good card in Commander unless Jim wants to prove me otherwise. Um, but I also think this card will show like a 20% return over the next two years. So it's just something to keep in mind.
2: Yeah, it's not like a super powerful card in Commander um but it it is a good rate for what it is so people that own them will play them but it's one of those things where like commander cards either have to be extremely good at what they do or they have to be very niche to be popular and to be expensive i don't think the commander is necessarily going to cause this to like get more expensive but uh it is you know definitely a good card in in the format like it's just it's just a good rate Cool. Well,
0: hopefully we uh, provided some fast finance information this week to all of our listeners. Where can people go ahead and find you guys?
1: Uh, I'm Edwin. You guys can find me on Twitter at Edwin13. Uh, I'm currently in Barcelona still. I will be in Chiba next weekend. Uh, Minneapolis the weekend after that and then Vegas to round out the month of August at the Tales of Venture booth for the USGPs
2: my name is Jim Fasal you can find me on Twitter at VHROST underscore you can find me on this level of the podcast I think you will be able to find me at Magic Fest Atlanta in October that's legacy Uh, yeah I'm not going to play in the Grand Prix that's stupid who would oh. do that nobody does that now i would go to like players that i would go to go buy halloween. foil cards and play commander that's like it isn't it halloween is it on halloween i don't know Oh wait, no.
0: i think atlanta is like september 6th or something
2: yeah whatever i don't know it's like september october i don't remember exactly what the date is but I, atlanta is the last weekend
1: uh Or second to last weekend in September. It's right before the pre-release of the new set drops.
0: Eternal weekends on Halloween. That's what I'm thinking about.
2: Right. So uh, I might be there. I haven't decided yet. I have to talk to my wife and convince her that she wants to go to Atlanta for the weekend. And then I'll drive up there probably since it's the only one I'll be able to drive to.
0: I'm Jeremy. You can find me on Twitter at the great state of Missouri MTG. I will be cubing at GP Minneapolis and cubing at GP Vegas. But there's a like, if you want to say hi to us, I'll come on site and say hi to the listeners. Uh, And yeah, Ed gets to see me again after like a nice couple month break. So, should be fun. Anyway, you can find this podcast on our sponsors, CoolStuffInc.com, on SoundCloud, on YouTube. We always live stream these. Uh, YouTube actually changes that next week, so we may have a different format for the cast starting next week as Google Hangouts is going away. Um, And, yeah, thanks for listening to the podcast. Follow us on Twitter at cartel underscore finance. And, as always, have
1: a great day and bye-bye.